Hello, everyone, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about some NFL, what's going down in week nine and week 10. We'll go to Jack's Pack, then we'll shift to the NBA rumor mill, the offseason, what's going down there. We'll talk about NCAA football and general NCAA sports battle against COVID, and then we'll have our best for last. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And we had an absolutely loaded show today. And we had an absolutely loaded NFL week. It seems like the good games were bad, the bad games were good. All in all, there were storylines and potential everywhere. So we're going to jump right into it with a little week nine recap. Now, the big game, obviously heading into the weekend, was Tom Brady attempting to exact his revenge along with the rest of his Buccaneer squad against the New Orleans Saints for what was a fairly handed victory in week one in the Superdome. Well, Tom Brady got to play him again. That's always good. Unless you lose worse. The Saints absolutely dominated from start to finish. The game was over in the first quarter. I mean, for the first three drives, the Buccaneers had three punts. The Saints had three touchdowns. The game was over. It was very reminiscent of Rocky movie where the large Russian is beating on Apollo Creed and his Rocky's train is going through in the towel. It was over. It was over about as fast as you could blink. I mean, you if you stopped when got pizza and came back, it was probably 28 to zero. It was absolutely brutal. The Saints beat them starting, in my opinion, on Wednesday when they installed the game plan. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers clearly knew about the Saints' stout run defense and ran an NFL record low five times, and one of those was a kneel down. So they intentionally ran the ball four times. Now you go, Justin. What about the fact that they were down early so fast? You got the ball every time. Okay, you didn't get it on the first try. 7-0. You got the ball back. Run the ball. Even if you say, hey, we're going to try and get it right back. You know, we got these weapons. We got Antonio Brown, Mike Evans, Scotty Miller, Chris Godwin, even though he had a broken finger, Rob Gronkowski, Cameron Brait. We're going to try and get it right back. You don't. They come down and score again. 14-0. Now you should look aside and go, okay, our defense doesn't have it tonight. Let's run the ball. Let's try and get ourselves out of it. Nope. Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich was trying to score 14 points to play. Anybody knows football? No, that's impossible. And therefore, they got themselves further and further in a hole to where you couldn't run the ball because you didn't flat out have enough time to try and make up for it. You basically made two of your best players in terms of talent and Ronald Jones the second and Leonard Fournette useless because now they're glorified receivers. At one point, they even put Antonio Brown in the backfield and had him run a route. So clearly, the strategy was to try and feed the mouths of the receivers. I wonder if that's going to be an issue in future games, especially because they play a pretty decent Carolina Panthers defense last game notwithstanding against the Chiefs. Speaking on the same side of it, though, they had a plan. They definitely came out and attacked. They were able to use all three of their quarterbacks, even though Jameis came in and mop-up duty. They were able to use all three of their quarterbacks. Taysom Hill was effective. Michael Thomas was back, and you can definitely see the confidence that Drew Brees and the rest of their offense has when Michael Thomas is in the lineup. Now, shifting to one of the shockers and one of the reasons that I had my worst Jacks Pack week ever, 
the Seattle Seahawks went to Buffalo and had a bad Seattle Seahawks game. When you look at the final score, you say, man, 44-34, what a shootout. It was, but it was very much aided by four Russell Wilson turnovers. Look, I know he's putting a lot on his back. The same thing I say about Carson Wentz in Philadelphia, those guys are carrying horrible teams. In the case of Russell Wilson, he's carrying a terrible defense trying to win a Super Bowl. In the case of Carson Wentz, he's carrying a terrible and injured roster trying to win a terrible and injured division in the NFC East. But speaking of Russell Wilson, he can't turn the ball over four times. I say it about Carson Wentz too. One turnover trying to be aggressive, that's one thing. A second turnover, okay, that's pushing. When you get to the three and the four range, it's just too many turnovers for anybody to try to overcome, especially if you're dealing with, like I said, Russell Wilson at this point, dealing with the worst defense in NFL history by a standard deviation or three. And so when you're dealing with a defense that bad, the Bills came straight out and was like, we're not even going to try to run the ball. We know your pass rush is mundane. Carlos Dunlap is your best pass rusher, and he showed up a week ago. And so, therefore, you are not going to create any legitimate pressure on Josh Allen. And Josh Allen had a field day. He was able to get Stephon Diggs the ball, Cole Beasley, and the rest of those weapons in Buffalo. And really took advantage of Russell Wilson's costly mistakes in Seattle. And therefore, Russell, in my opinion, opened the door to the MVP race. I think Patrick Mahomes, with his 25 touchdowns and one interception, has walked in. I think Aaron Rodgers has walked in. Dalvin Cook has run his way in. Kyler Murray is still my dark horse MVP candidate due to take integrity. I will remain and keep him in there because he's absolutely balling right now. And speaking of Kyler Murray, he had, in my opinion, the game of the weekend, the battle of the weekend, and one of the games of the season so far between him and rookie Tua Tagovailoa of the Miami Dolphins in Tua's second start of his career. I expected the Cardinals to win. Another reason why Jack's pack didn't go great. I expected the Cardinals to win. Had Cliff Kingsbury done what I wanted a couple of times, they might have won. I'm not one to second guess coaching. Obviously, those guys see a lot in terms of, hey, we know the Dolphins aren't great in fourth and short. We're a pretty good fourth and short team. Let's go for it. Let's run the ball and that sort of thing. But they had it on third and short or fourth and short. I counted five or six times. Kyler Murray had the ball three of them. They converted all three. You took the ball out of Kyler Murray's hands three times. You kicked the field goal and you ran the ball in traditional inside zone style play. You were stuffed twice and the field goal was short. You lost the game on those three plays because you could have let Kyler Murray do what he does best, which is make plays. He's like Barry Sanders that can throw. He's the only person, he's the only quarterback I've ever seen that could run up to a linebacker, stop, and juke the linebacker completely out of his socks, or just put his foot in the dirt and run away from the linebacker, and they've got no shot. I mean, he does the secondary members too. It's honestly embarrassing. But I think Cliff Kingsbury cost the Cardinals that game by not trusting Kyler Murray more. He has Kyler Murray. He has DeAndre Hopkins. He has Larry Fitzgerald. I get it, you wanna run the ball. I get it, you don't wanna be just the air raid coach. But sometimes your roots is what got you there for a reason. You gotta go back to your roots. You line up five wide and you give them some kind of RPO draw situation. So if it's a middle opens up, you take off. But if nothing opens there, you know you got slants behind you and that sort of thing. So I don't I don't get the decision there to take the ball to Kyler Murray's hands, especially after the first time didn't work. Now to the shocking maneuver, a shocking moment, I should say, to attack of our lowest play. 
he played exceptional. A lot better than I thought he would. A lot better than he did in his first ever start. I think the Cardinals defense definitely helped him there. They're not really a stout unit, but he was still accurate on time with the football. Showed NFL level mobility. Remember, that was something I was afraid about last week. Can he get away from a defensive end? Can he get away from a slower, bigger linebacker? He got away from a couple of guys on the Cardinals. Again, not the best unit in the league, but he was able to show NFL level mobility, NFL level accuracy. So with that being said, his only issue would be his health. So we'll definitely be watching out for Tua Tagovailoa the rest of the season and the rest of his career. Shifting to our next game, the Baltimore Ravens and the Indianapolis Colts. Baltimore, you have a problem. It's Lamar. That is your problem. Baltimore, you should not be sitting here going, we have a chance to win the Super Bowl. No, you do not. Your quarterback has still thrown for less yards than Dak Prescott. Just to be a situation of context, the last three games, maybe four, four games for the Dallas Cowboys have been started by Andy Dalton twice, Ben DiNucci once, and Garrett Gilbert the fourth time. So Dak Prescott hasn't played in a month, and he's out throwing your quarterback who's been there every week. Look, Lamar's talented. He's freakishly talented. But if I'm the general manager of the Baltimore Ravens, I go to my owner, Steve Vashadi, and I straight up ask, do you feel comfortable losing two defensive players and possibly offensive linemen so that Lamar Jackson can stay on this football team? If not, I can trade him right now for two first round picks, maybe something else. Somebody willing to give me the ammunition and we can go get a quarterback that can actually play traditional football and surround him with better weapons or utilize the weapons we have in Willie Sneed and Hollywood Brown and others. Hey, look, if I'm the Ravens, I seriously think about that. I know it sounds blasphemous. He just won an MVP last year, but that is something I would definitely consider moving off of Lamar Jackson. And again, his running ability is hardly second to none. I mean, I think Kyler has a little better feet. I think Kyler's a much better throw of the football. But you cannot run an offense like it's the 1980s, basically running a wishbone offense because your quarterback can't throw outside of the numbers. He can hit a tight end. He can hit a seam. He can hit an open deep ball. Congratulations. He can't throw a 10-yard out. I've yet to see him throw a corner route with any accuracy more than once. Like, I just don't see the obsession with Lamar in Baltimore. And I think that the owner and Coach Harbaugh and the general manager, Greg Roman even, need to sit down and talk and see if there's a better option for the Baltimore Ravens out there that is not named Lamar Jackson. And to wrap up week nine, the New England Patriots and the New York Jets. This was the tank bowl that turned into a hell of a game at the end. I mean, Joe Flacco turned back the hands of time in the 2011 Cam Newton turned back the hands of time in the 2014. I mean, these guys were absolutely dealing. Flacco dropping bombs, beautiful people's shoulders. Cam Newton ran the ball effectively. He was incredibly accurate. I've not seen that kind of accuracy out of Cam Newton in a long time. He wasn't doing a lot of deep sea fishing, but he was definitely doing the precision accurate routes, which is something we have looked for from Cam Newton in terms of development over his career. Ultimately, maybe somebody got in Joe Flacco's ear about, hey, we need to lose this game. But he threw a terrible interception. 
Cam Newton led him back down the field again. The Patriots scored, I believe, 13 points in a matter of a few minutes, maybe four and a half. And they ultimately win what was supposed to be kind of a tank fest. And the Patriots won the game. Now, you saw the jubilation on the sideline. That doesn't happen from a Bill Belichick team by beating the winless Jets. If anything, he would be scowling because they shouldn't have been that close. That tells you the state of the Patriots. They're trying to get any win they can get. They've played themselves out of the Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, even Zach Wilson from BYU stakes. Now, could they get Mac Jones from Alabama? Kyle Trask from Florida? Absolutely. They can get one of those guys because they'll be there in that middle to late first round. But the first four quarterbacks are probably gone in the first 12 picks. So New England probably played themselves out of the big three. So you're looking at maybe Zach Wilson from BYU. Is he better than Cam Newton over the next three years? If the answer is no, then you use that cap space. You grab weapons. You trade back, get more picks, and you build around Cam Newton, bringing your eight opt-outs back for the Patriots, and you go that way. For the Jets, you have an inside tracker, Trevor Lawrence. Congratulations. Now, shifting to week 10. Obviously, we're going to start with Titans and Colts. Thursday night football preview, which we will be talking about in Jack's pack for our best for last. Now, the Titans had a good win. Not a great win. Derrick Henry didn't really do a whole lot of anything. And I was going up against a very stout Indianapolis Colts defense that just limited the Ravens rushing attack, basically null and void, and forcing Lamar Jackson to beat him through the air, which was almost not done. So it'll be very interesting to see Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry go against that. It's two good young coaches. I like Mike Vrabel a lot. And I also am a big fan of the Indianapolis Colts coach as well. Two good organizations, especially now with the daughter of Bud Adams running the show in Tennessee. So it'll be very interesting to watch that game tonight. Shifting to a game that I don't think will be particularly close. Carolina. Panthers fans, hide your wife, hide your children. There's a massacre coming. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to run through the Carolina Panthers. In my world, I call it getting buzzsawed. It ain't going to be pretty. You got an angry Tom Brady. You've got a frustrated football team. You've got a frustrated coaching staff. You've got Mike Evans, who probably might go for 10 for a buck 50 and two touchdowns. You've got a running game that has to be furious. They just have to wake off. I mean, you've got guys, they're here in the media. Oh, you're a wild card team now. You might not even wait the second round of the playoffs. You've got to win three road playoff games now. The Saints have your number. The Saints have the South. And unfortunately, the Carolina Panthers happen to have a team in the South. So they're going to face a angry, upset Buccaneer team. And I don't expect that game to be close. Shifting to the Eagles and Giants, a sneaky big game between two teams with bad records. Because if the Giants win that game, the Dallas Cowboys are back in the NFC East race. It sounds nuts. But then Dallas would have two wins before they even play. The Giants would have three. The Eagles would have three. So then the Cowboys are right back in the NFC East race. And the Washington football team would still be only two games out now with Alex Smith starting due to the unfortunate injury of Kyle Allen, and I hope he's okay after his surgery. But that is a sneaky big game in the NFC East. Now, if the Eagles win, they have a two-game lead on everybody. 
when considering that I don't think anybody in that division is winning more than seven games, a two-game lead would be absolutely massive. So for Philly, I think they should treat this like a must-win. Carson Wentz needs to be efficient. He definitely needs to outplay Daniel Jones to keep off the boo birds and to keep off the critics and the media. And it is a huge game in the NFC East. Seahawks and Rams, a huge game in the NFC West. So same thing. Seattle has a pretty has a one-game lead, I believe, on the rest of everybody else. And the Rams are one game behind, and Arizona is also right there. They're within a game or two of the Seattle Seahawks. So the Seahawks win. You put a two-game lead over everybody in a division where I think everybody but the 49ers due to injury is going to win 10 games or more. A two-game lead is huge. So because of that, the Seahawks can put a grip on the NFC West, only having lost to the Arizona Cardinals in that shootout with Kyler and the overtime battle be the only NFC West loss they would have. And so therefore this would be a huge victory for the Seattle Seahawks if they were to win. Vice versa for the Rams though. They can pull the Seahawks back to the pack, pull themselves up to first place, and now they're sitting pretty in the NFC West and Arizona will be coming furiously. Now a battle that I believe that if you just love football, high quality ball, and you like rookie young quarterbacks, the battle of the rookies, the first battle of the rookies, it would be Justin Herbert versus Tua Tagovailoa. Now, these two never played in college. Oregon and Alabama don't play much. And so this would be the first time they would have seen each other ever on a football field as competitors. Justin Herbert is the antecedent to Tua Tagovailoa. He's bigger. He's stronger. He has the prototypical size and arm. He's even right-handed. Tua, obviously, smaller frame, smaller arm, left-handed. But both obviously can spin the football. They're both obviously great talents. That'll be very interesting to watch because a Chargers team that finds a way to lose football games under coach Anthony Lynn and Brian Flores and that staff in Miami seems to always have the Dolphins rearing and ready to go and always prepared in late game situations. And then the ultimate chess match game is the Sunday night game between the New England Patriots and the Baltimore Ravens. So obviously the New England Patriots are very under talented at the moment due to opt outs, cap space, pushing all the chips to the center of the table. The bill came due. You robbed Peter to pay Paul. Paul needed his money. Peter needed his money eventually. Well, Peter's bill came due. The Patriots were out of money. So this would be interesting because now the NFL almost seems to have a book on Lamar Jackson. That book is you guard the middle of the field, you put eight in the box, and you make him throw the ball outside because he's not comfortable doing that like he should be. So Bill Belichick having that book, I expect to see a lot of multiple defensive personnel, a lot of fluid defenses because Baltimore likes to run hurry up when they get you trapped in a personnel group you don't like. And so if you have a lot of multiple bodies, linebackers that can drop to the end, the ends can go to linebackers, corners that can go to safety, linebackers that can play corner, that sort of thing. A lot of multiple personnel on defense, you maybe can slow a Baltimore Ravens attack down. But I don't expect that game to be particularly close either. I expect Baltimore to win that game handedly. But we're definitely going to see whether Bill Belichick, Cam Newton, Josh McDaniels can do anything to Greg Roman's offense. Also, getting through Baltimore's defense. They have the top scoring defense in the league due to Arizona torching Miami's defense over the past week. And so it's going to be very interesting to see a struggling, I do mean struggling, New England Patriots offense to even keep healthy bodies attempt to get through that defense of Baltimore. 
But up next, we're going to shift to Jack's pack. You guys stick around. That is our NFL betting segment. All right, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to shift to our NFL segment called Jack's Pack. Two weeks ago, we talked about um, how great we were doing. We went 4-1, and one, spectacular. We were 57-some-odd percent. We were, like, right below the professional betting line of what you really want to be when you play bets, 58%. We were doing great. Then last week, we go 1-4. and four. I'm like, okay, we had to come back to the mean. Remember, the average is 58 so a 50-50 split, no big deal. This week past, we went 0-5. Honestly, guys, we didn't even have a chance. Like last week, we went 1-4, but I was like, hey, you know, we were really close to 3-2. and two. This week, we were playing the hopes and edges of getting 1-4. Like the Chiefs gave us our best shot there for a while. Pittsburgh was a couple decisions away from us going 2-3. Honestly, if Kingsbury could have had us going three and two, that's a lot of ifs. To even get to three and two, we went 0 and five. So now we've slipped below 500, as we are now 20, 23, and two. Hey, it happens. You know, other guys I'm listening to their shows, their betting segments, they're below 500. It's a weird year with COVID. You don't know what's going to happen and when. But hey, this week we're going to get back on track. We went, remember, we went four and one, then one and four. So why not go 0 and five to five and 0? But this week, we're going to go Eagles versus Giants. The Giants are plus three. Doesn't matter. Take the Eagles. Like I said earlier, this is a huge game for Philadelphia. They can basically, in my opinion, lock up the NFC East with a two-game win. Even though they're only going to have four wins, they're going to have a two-game lead after this week. Take the Eagles. Next up, we're going to go Buccaneers versus Panthers. Panthers getting five and a half. Doesn't matter. Go Tampa Bay. Again, like I said earlier, Tampa Bay is going to be a buzzsaw. They're going to be angry, pissed off. Carolina put out a lot of tricks and trades to try and beat the Chiefs. It didn't work. And now they're going to get an angry Buccaneers team who's pissed off about their performance last week. You take a good team, they got embarrassed on national television. They're probably going to run through the next team they play unless it's another great team. Unfortunately, Carolina is not one, especially without Christian McCaffrey. The Green Bay Packers getting 13 and a half points versus Jacksonville. Take the Green Bay Packers minus 13 and a half. This might be 40 to 3 kind of game, maybe 40 to 10. Jacksonville's got a pretty decent quarterback at the moment. He's not afraid to gun it, but Aaron, they have no defense to stop Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Jones and Devontae Adams. I am going Green Bay probably by 25 or 30 there. So obviously I would go Green Bay even though minus 13 and a half. Arizona minus two versus Buffalo. I would take Arizona. I think Arizona's going to win the game flat out and straight up. I think it's going to be a game where Cliff Kingsbury maybe tries to overcorrect and give Kyler a little too much freedom. But hey, with Kyler, the more the merrier. So I think they're going to win that game outright. And Arizona minus two over Buffalo. Take Arizona. And finally, the Baltimore Ravens versus the New England Patriots. Patriots plus seven. I love the Patriots. They're my team. Those are my guys. They don't have a chance against Baltimore. This might be just like the other Sunday Night Massacre that if you look at it, 
when the Ravens ran through the Patriots last season, basically ended the Patriots dynasty. That, that was the game where the defense was never the same. The offense seemed to never recover. I think they're going to basically end the Patriots season by running through them again on Sunday night. Even though in my previous predictions, I had the Patriots losing this game anyway when I did their record. They also accounted for them winning other games that they didn't. And so I think Baltimore will basically end the New England Patriots season, blowing them out. Even though the Patriots are getting plus seven, I would take Baltimore. So just to recap, Eagles over Giants, Bucks over Panthers, Packers over Jacksonville, Cardinals over Buffalo, Ravens over Patriots. Now up next, we'll be shifting to the NBA to talk about what's going down there. A whole lot of noise happening already before the offseason even starts. Alrighty guys and welcome back and now we're going to jump into arguably the most fun thing about the NBA which is the rumor mill. You know a rumor started to swore in the offseason and this guy's requested a trade and that guy's gonna sign a contract with this team and usually none of it happens. But it's always so much fun with the NBA because now reporting and inside tracks has gotten so much better and sometimes guys are just straight up telling us now on social media. So let's start off with Chris Paul. Now, Chris Paul, obviously, we thought he was going to be gone before the season started last year, then around the trade deadline, but the team was actually pretty good, and Chris Paul stuck it out, had those guys the fourth seed in the West, Tar guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and those guys how to win basketball games and the OKC Thunder. But he's not going to be back next year. He has a $40 million price tag. I don't think OKC wants to do that, even though they have a decent chance of being a solid team in the West. With teams like Golden State coming back, they have no chance at a championship, so they're going to go young. That being said, Chris Paul has been linked to a few different franchises. Obviously, he's been linked to the Lakers due to his connection with LeBron James and the clutch sports affiliation just in general. Now, I don't think he's a clutch sport athlete, but he tends to hang around a lot of clutch sports guys. So he's been linked to the Los Angeles Lakers. He's also been linked to the Phoenix Suns. It's been confirmed by Brian Windhorst of ESPN that Chris Paul has been in trade conversations with the Thunder and the Suns. Obviously, he's been linked to the Knicks. Everybody's always linked to the Knicks, but he's been linked to the Knicks as well, especially if they pull off a free agent acquisition of Carmelo Anthony. Now, the big news that broke Thursday was Russell Westbrook requesting a trade. Now, we've been hearing from Kendrick Perkins on shows like First Things First that Harden or Westbrook has not been talking to the coaching staff, has not been talking to the ownership, been completely MIA in regards to the Houston Rockets, and that, you know, that change was coming. They were going to blow it up. And one half of his equation was correct with Russell Westbrook requesting a trade away from the Houston Rockets. Now, the Rockets could have more issues. Austin Rivers, Eric Gordon were upset with their uses last season. Westbrook wants out because he doesn't want to play with James Harden anymore due to Harden's ball-dominant style, along with Westbrook are also having a ball-dominant style as well. No real list of teams when it comes to Westbrook, although the Charlotte Hornets emerged as a candidate, again, along with the New York Knicks. The Charlotte Hornets emerged as a candidate. Obviously, he's a brand Jordan athlete. Michael Jordan owns the Hornets. He's looking for somebody to sell tickets. He's looking for somebody to really make an impact in the Charlotte area. 
Russell's a great guy, especially in the community. He'd be a great leader for that young team, and he will sell tickets as a one-man Tasmanian devil. DeMar DeRozan is in a very interesting spot in San Antonio. Obviously, the San Antonio culture is good. It's great, and it's one of the best cultures in the NBA. But DeMar has made his money, and now he's looking to win. Especially when Kawhi went to Toronto and won, a lot of people said, oh, so DeMar was holding the team back. Fair or unfair to DeMar, that's the label he has right now. So he's been linked to the Los Angeles Lakers to help form a big three in L.A. Now, do I think that he could make a difference in L.A.? Absolutely. I don't think he's a perfect fit for the Lakers. They look for shooting. DeMar has said, I can shoot threes. I just don't, which is always a very weird thing when NBA players say that. But he's been linked to the Los Angeles Lakers. He would definitely, in my opinion, will not be backed with the San Antonio Spurs. Jumping back quickly to the Westbrook situation, he is going to obviously be linked to teams like the New York Knicks and stuff of that nature. But he was linked quickly. Not sure how realistic it was, but linked quickly to the Los Angeles Clippers. So if you were to make a deal, let's say the Clippers were to say, we're going to trade for Russell Westbrook to Houston. You're going to have to trade Lou Will, Landry Shaman, Ivica Zubac, several picks and whatever picks you have left because you traded a lot for Paul George and you push all your chips into the middle of the table for a year because Paul George and Kawhi Leonard can both opt out after next season. I expect both of them to opt out. If they decide to come back, then obviously they'll go for max money or they want the, the freedom to go to free agency. But anyway, it's going to our next person. We'll be shifting to Dennis Schroeder. Now, Dennis Schroeder, quickly, he's been talked about meeting with a couple teams. He said teams like the Lakers, he name-dropped. He said the Lakers and a couple other teams have called his agents about his services, and he's not interested in going. Oklahoma City has a great culture. They have, from the top down, with their GM, their ownership, their small-town feel, a lot of guys who get into Oklahoma City never want to leave Oklahoma City, and you can pretty much add Dennis Schroeder's name to the list. Now, obviously, money talks. So if the Lakers do a big dollar move for him, it'll be hard for them to say no. But as of right now, he's looking like he's going back to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Drew Holiday is still linked in trade talks. He will be moved before the draft on November 18th. The reason I'm saying this is his trade value is never higher than before the draft. Because Chicago has been linked to him at six. Detroit believes they're going to come up from seven. So maybe Detroit thinks in some planet they can make a three-team deal work where they come up from seven. They worked out LaMelo Ball, so they clearly think they're going to come up from seven to get into that top three to get into the LaMelo Ball sweepstakes. You have Atlanta, who obviously are interested in Drew Holiday and some sort of three-team deal where Atlanta pick lands on the New Orleans Pelicans roster. And so there is a lot of movement going on involving Drew Holiday. Serge Ibaka is a very sought-after weapon. We have Kevin Durant, who's been linked to recruiting him. He's been linked to the Lakers. The Clippers are obviously needing rim protection. They've been linked to recruiting him as well. Serge Ibaka will get his choice of location in terms of where he wants to play basketball, possibly for the last few great years of his career, and he'll be on a championship contender when he does that. Now, obviously, the draft is less than a week away, so we're going to talk about it now. Obviously, the number one pick is the Minnesota Timberwolves, then the Golden State Warriors at two. And then the big debate is who's going to go one? I think that LaMelo Ball is going to go first in the NBA draft. The reason I say this is 
And it's not a perfect fit with him and D'Angelo Russell. But he's got marketability. Putting him in Minnesota is going to be great. He's not going to be a situation where he's going to come in. He can do a lot of things. He can shoot. He can pass. He can dribble. Not the best defender on the planet. So Minnesota is going to give up a ton of points because neither is D'Angelo Russell. But those guys are going to be a show in Minnesota. They're going to be must-see TV. And they're going to help a struggling marketing franchise market a player. I mean, even if he's there for the first seven years of his career, he jets. He pulls Anthony Davis. He pulls a Kevin Love. He does a Kyrie Irving where they get out towards the end of that second contract. It would be something that Minnesota can't pass up because what if you don't draft him at one and then Golden State doesn't draft him at two and all of a sudden he's sitting down number three. It is a mad frenzy to get to number three for the shot at LaMelo Ball. Anthony Edwards is a good player. He's smaller than I would like him to be for his play style. He feels like a two guard and a one guard's body, which is usually in today's NBA to reverse. And what I mean by it's reversed is usually these guys, their scoring point guard is popular, but they're not a legitimate two guard. So if you put Russell Westbrook at the two, it doesn't work nearly as well. You put Dame at the two, it could work, but he's better with the ball in his hand. Anthony Edwards feels like an old classic two guard, like a shooting guard, a scoring first, assist second, shooting, put the ball in the hole kind of guy in a one guard's body, but a big one guard's body because he's 225 pounds. He's built like a middle linebacker or an outside linebacker, even a safety in football, but he's playing basketball as a smaller guard. He's six foot three, not tiny, but again, for his play style, I would prefer him to be six five, six six, six seven. James Wiseman is the can't miss center. The problem is in the NBA, centers are a dying art. I think he does not go past two. So he can't he can't go one because there's no way him and Carl Anthony Thompson play together. It's not possible, especially in today's NBA. You're basically relegating the kids to the bench and you're not going to draft the number one overall pick with the intent purpose of putting him on the bench. Because, again, in today's NBA, Cat 6'11", not necessarily mobile. James Wiseman 7'1", not the most mobile guy on the planet either. They can't play together in today's NBA. So he's out of one. That against two, Golden State. What is their main problem? They have a center problem. What is James Wiseman? A center. They could easily just take James Wiseman out of Memphis, pluck him in San Francisco. Now you've got a legitimate starting five with no weakness. You have the greatest shooter to ever live in Steph Curry. You've got the greatest catch and shoot shooter to ever live in Klay Thompson. A good wing in uh, Andrew Wiggins. The perfect player for your system in Draymond Green. And a top, probably when he walks in the league, 15 center in James Wiseman. That's a very dangerous team. That's a championship level team in Golden State because they've been trying to plug and play rookies in that spot with Damian Jones and others to be that center for the Golden State Warriors. Then you got the rest of the guys. You have Obi Toppin. I don't think he's a number one pick candidate, but a good player. You got Cole Anthony. Again, I don't think he's a number one pick candidate, but a good player. You have the foreign guys. You got Killian Hayes, I believe is his name. Again, not a number one overall pick candidate, but a good player. And Danny Abdija as well. And so with these guys in the draft, there's going to be a very interesting NBA draft. I feel like it's going to be a draft we're going to look back on in five to ten years and go, you know, that draft may not have had a top five NBA player in it. Even I think LaMelo Ball and Wiseman and Edwards could be that. But they have a bunch of five through 15 guys. which I definitely think Obi Toppin can be that. He averaged 20 and 7, shooting over 40% from three. 
at the college level last season. I definitely believe that these guys can do that. And so it's going to be a very good draft. That's going to fill out a lot of all NBA and all-star teams over the next, again, five to 10 years. But that is all we have for the NBA. Up next, we're going to shift to college football and their battle versus COVID. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. Now, as we know, NCAA has been rocked with COVID recently throughout multiple sports. We had the Ivy League shut down men and women's basketball due to COVID concerns. You've had all the major conferences change how they were going to play basketball this season, again, due to COVID concerns. But in shifting to college football, since that season is happening, the main season right now, you've had a couple of cancellations. Obviously, the SEC has been hit the hardest of this week. They lost the annual showdown between LSU and Alabama. Now, it wasn't going to be the usual showdown. LSU is not great this season. Alabama seems to be one of the best two or three teams in the country. But that is a game that draws massive ratings and really is a major game in the recruiting battle for the South and getting footballs out of the, football players out of the South, rather, to have guys at these major universities. But the game, they say is postponed. It's going to be honest, guys, it's canceled. There's no way to play it due to the fact that Florida had an outbreak earlier in the season when they were supposed to play LSU. So they shifted the Florida and LSU game to the automatic bye week that said in case of a COVID outbreak, they shifted into that game. Well, there's not two weeks there. It's just one. So there's no space to play LSU Alabama unless the commissioner of the SEC cancels another game for LSU and moves the Bama game into that slot, which just caused all kind of problems throughout the conference. It would show favoritism and all the other stuff. The SEC also lost another game as well. Again, not as big as LSU Alabama, but another game as well they lost. But I think that game, neither one of their teams had to use their emergency bye week. So they're really just going to postpone it and shift it to that last week. The Big Ten lost the game. Ohio State would not play a game this week due to their opponent having a COVID situation. Now that's a problem for Ohio State because they were already teetering the line of the amount of games you would need to qualify for the college football playoff because college football, again, was unnecessarily stingy and stringent on the rules they were going to allow and how they were going to set things up this season. So Ohio State lost the game. That's huge. Again, already teetering on the edge. They didn't have the flexibility to move the game. It was just flat out canceled. And so that's huge for the college football playoff. Now the Pac-12 could get a team in, but they're going to need to be perfect. They have seven games on their schedule. They cannot go below seven games. So they're going to have to be perfect. So if they're going to have an undefeated champion, they're going to need a USC to run the table undefeated, get out of the conference, play all seven games, and then go to the playoff as the Pac-12 representative. The Big 12, I believe they're going to make it through. So they're going to send a champion. The ACC, they're going to send the winner of Notre Dame and Clemson in the ACC title game. That's pretty much decided. And then the SEC or the Big 10 will have to fight for a spot. And I think the SEC is going to get it. So it's a very real possibility that the Big 10, an Ohio State team that could have one loss, could be outside looking in. If they lose a game, they could be on the outside looking in. Now, when it comes down to, hey, Ohio State's undefeated, Clemson turns out to be Notre Dame, do you put a one-loss Clemson team or undefeated Ohio State team? Do you put an undefeated 
USC team versus a one loss Clemson versus an undefeated Ohio State. So it'll be a very interesting debate in terms of the college football playoff because no one's playing an even schedule. The SEC, Big 12, and ACC did their best to come as close as they could, but ultimately their schedules have moved around and now guys are getting games canceled and stuff like that. So it'll be very interesting to watch. But up next, we will have our best for last, which will be a recap of Thursday Night Football between the Tennessee Titans and the Indianapolis Colts. And we are back. Well, what a game we had on Thursday Night Football between two division rivals fighting for first place in the AFC South between the Tennessee Titans and the Indianapolis Colts. Now, I was expecting a lot of Derrick Henry. I got a lot of Derrick Henry. Unfortunately for the Tennessee Titans, special teams bit them. They got bit by the bad special teams bug. They had a shank punt with their third punter in three weeks. Then the very next punt, it was block return for a touchdown. So they had 14 points directly on the board and change from punting. I mean, directly from punting. And then the field goal kicker, Gaskowski, missed his eighth field goal of the season, taking another three points off the board. So that was 17 points directly from special teams in terms of a swing that the Tennessee Titans gave up. Obviously, when you give up 17 points on special teams, it's going to be really hard to win a football game, especially between two good teams. And the Tennessee Titans was handled other than that. Indianapolis, good defense, stayed true, stayed like they were a dominant unit, and they're a great unit. They're in the top five in points allowed, if memory serves me correctly, and those guys can really play on that side of the ball. They've got a good defensive coordinator. He's really scheming those guys well, and they believe in him and what they're doing in Indianapolis. Now, in regards to Tennessee, this is a loss that another one of those head-scratching losses. This is their third loss of the season all three have come from head scratching moments and situations where you wouldn't normally lose a game for instance they basically lost the game because they did not execute on special teams it is very rare for a good football team and the titans are a good football team to not be able to execute on special teams and because of that you take away the way your offense works in derrick henry you make it a pass happy offense around Tannehill. they're not built to do that I mean, they even had the backup quarterback finish the game in Woodside, basically punting, for lack of a better term, on the rest of the game with about three minutes left in the fourth quarter. So it was admitting defeat by Vrabel, not used to a Vrabel or a New England-style team since it's basically New England South doing that sort of thing. But they punted with about three minutes left in the game. Phillip Rivers finishes with about 300 yards, only one touchdown, but he had a couple of rushing touchdowns to boot and a a support touchdown with a punt. Ryan Tannehill finished with less than 200 yards passing. So even though they had to go past happy, they were trying to ride Henry as long as they could. But when the score got to be 34-17, then they realized they couldn't ride Henry, and so they had to go to Tannehill. But the Tennessee Titans need to sign some semblance of a pass rush. Jadavion Clowney is still sackless. They gave him $13 million. They gave Vic Beasley almost $10 million, and they cut him already. They were over him, and so he was waived. And they got to find some semblance of a pass rush if they're going to compete in the AFC. You're not going to allow 
great offenses like the Chiefs offense, even the Chargers with Justin Herbert, they don't make the playoffs, but another good offense. A lot of these other great young quarterbacks in the AFC should just stand there and not be pressured and have a chance of getting out of the conference and making to the Super Bowl after being so close last season. But that is all we have for today's show. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. I am your host, Justin Jackson. Don't forget to follow the Twitter page at JTimeSports for breaking news updates on pretty much all major American sports. We dabble in little foreign sports as well, but definitely NBA, NFL, college football. We'll cover baseball. We'll also take looks at MMA and stuff like that. So please pay attention to the Twitter page at JTimeSports. I repeat, at JTimeSports. This is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.